The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content views and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello again and welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts, and also on soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I'm Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Tema for Sports Talk TV show available on BMC Channels 9 and 29 and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. Well, if only one good thing came out of the Patriots' Super Bowl 52 loss to the Eagles uh, last winter, it was engaging in some actual on-field analysis about the team during last year's playoff run with Evan Lazar, who we when we first met, uh, when we first had him here on the Toddcast, was working a myriad of sports media-related jobs. I am uh, pleased to report that all of Evan's hard work has paid off, as now he is the official Patriots beat reporter for CLNS Media, which you can find online at clnsmedia.com and on Twitter at CLNS Media. He also is the co-host of the Patriots All-22 podcast, which uh, has its own Twitter feed at Pat's All-22, and uh, links available to all of those podcasts on clnsmedia.com. And as we were talking before we started, uh, the uh, CLNS app is available, and of course the All-22 podcast is available on SoundCloud, just like our uh, Toddcasts here. So you can check all that out. Evans, first of all, uh, starting off here, congrats on the the new full-time gig, and uh, thank you for joining me again here uh, on the Toddcast. Well, thanks for that intro. It was very uh, well done, Todd. Uh, gave me, uh, covered all the bases there, yeah. So thank you very much, and uh, very excited. Obviously, it's been a four or five weeks now that I, I've been full-time on the beat, but it's uh, it's awesome. It's a great job, and uh, I couldn't be happier. Yeah, I was going to say, in the past, all of the, the great work you did was kind of like from afar. You were doing it from a distance just kind of as a fan, and, you know, you were looking at, uh, you know, getting, you know, accessing films and tapes and things, but you're kind of just doing it, uh, not having access to any of the, the players on the team or anything. So how is that, uh, how's that been for you here so far, uh, getting to now, uh, you know, actually get to know these players on a, on a first-hand basis. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really uh, it's a great perspective uh, to talk to them and, and to talk to the coaches, Coach Belichick also, and it just kind of adds that next level of context to uh, some of my film analysis where I can really ask them specific questions about a certain play or a certain scheme that they like running or whatever it may be or, you know, kind of get into their preparation and all that kind of stuff too during the week and the lead-up to the games. So that added perspective and context, even some of it that I don't necessarily use in an article or something like that, but just my conversations with the players about kind of their thought process and how things go, uh, it has really been um, awesome and, and really kind Kind of enlightening in a lot of senses you know you kind of as fans or even as media covering the team from afar you kind of look at it and you see things and and you kind of maybe think too much about them sometimes i think and the players do have a really uh 
a knack, a good knack for kind of just uh, narrowing it down to what exactly is actually going through their heads in that moment in time. And I think that what I've learned most about it is actually that the game is a lot simpler than some of the people make it out to be. And uh, the players actually think a lot simpler. And and sometimes their instincts just pick up on things where uh, it's not so much, oh, they saw this in film study or, oh, they identified this as this certain play call or anything like that. They actually just kind of sometimes their football IQ and instincts just take over, especially with the Patriots players, a lot of them being veteran players and, you know, have a lot of experiences that they can build off of. Yeah, well, of course, you talk about football IQ. Nobody uh, heads that up more than uh, Bill Belichick himself. And, you know, Evan, I have a feeling uh, over time Belichick's going to come to really like having you uh, ask him questions because you do come at it from a more analytical, breaking down game film standpoint. And we all know how much Belichick just loves breaking down game film. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we've had some good interactions so far. Obviously, with him, I think a lot of people ask me, you know, what is it intimidating? Is it scary to ask him a question? It's really not, but you do have to uh, choose your words wisely and make sure that you frame questions in enough of a general sense that he will actually answer it. Because I think a lot of times what happens is, is people ask really poignant, uh, specific questions of him, either in terms of kind of uh, you know game film type stuff or game plan type stuff or about specific players you know like us asking him all the time about Josh Gordon you know he's not going to go there he's not going to answer uh, 500 words on what Josh Gordon has been up to over the last couple weeks even though we'd all love to hear it so it's uh, definitely about asking the questions in the right way and then obviously uh, I ask him you know sometimes I'll ask him yes or no questions just to get kind of his point of view on something like this week uh, with Frank Reich and the Indianapolis Colts coming to town it's uh, the old Eagles offensive coordinator obviously Frank Reich in from the Super Bowl last year so I asked him this morning you know are is there carryover from the Philadelphia offense uh, to what Frank Reich is now running in Indianapolis and he gave me a short answer but he confirmed what I thought I had already seen on film which was yes there is a lot of carryover so I think that we're going to see a game plan from Reich even though he kind of downplayed it uh, we had a conference call with him this afternoon, and he kind of downplayed the Super Bowl having much of an impact on this game or his game planning. I think that that might have been a little bit of gamesmanship there because I would assume if I was Frank Reich at least, and I'm sure that he would agree that I would just re- run back the Super Bowl game plan exactly to a T and see if the Patriots can stop it this time around. Yeah, well, of course, and uh, of course they're not going to, again, they're not going to have to deal with Adam Butler if they try to run a similar style of offense. Uh, I definitely want to talk about the Colts with you, Evan, but I, I think I want to start first by kind of looking back uh, since we're sort of at the quarter pole of the season, four games in. Uh, as usual, the Patriots kind of, uh, as has been typical of most of their Septembers in the Brady-Belichick era, they're they're still kind of finding their way a little bit probably this year, maybe more than other years. But I, I do want to get your initial thoughts, uh, maybe your assessment, what you've uh, seen here in the first four games uh, overall. And is there anything that's maybe surprised you from what you might have thought you were expecting to see before the season started? I think that the the good news is is that they do have it seems at least against some of the let's just call them mediocre teams like the Houston's and the Miami's of the world they do have a baseline that's still a very Patriot-like, right? And I know that we didn't necessarily see that baseline against Detroit, and obviously Jacksonville, I think everybody has kind of chalked that up to being a very tough matchup and a tough environment. I was down there for that Jacksonville game, and it was 
brutally hot. And I think that everyone has kind of come to terms with that as being a loss of, you know what, Jacksonville was just hungrier that day for some revenge from the title game and, you know, a couple of other different factors with the weather and it being on the road and all those types of things. We obviously didn't see what I was really surprised about was against Detroit. I really thought that the Patriots, should have had the advantage along the line of scrimmage in that game, especially on the offensive side of the ball, running the football, and we really didn't see them being able to physically dominate a Detroit run defense that has basically gotten gashed against every other team that they've played against this year. Obviously, against Miami, we saw the run offense kind of return to form. The blocking specifically up front was significantly improved. So I think that going forward, you know, what I've learned about this team just from watching them and talking to them for the past four weeks is that they want to be a tough physical football team, and they don't have a ton of athleticism, obviously, in the front seven on the defensive side of the ball. So I think that they realize that they're going to win with, uh, you know, instincts and smarts and IQ and all that kind of stuff, obviously, and also with physicality and being a physical team that won't get run on and uh, and that is able to control the game at the line of scrimmage on defense, and that's what they were able to do against Miami. And uh, Frank Reich, again, he basically said in his conference call, someone asked him uh, what was the biggest difference between the Patriots in week four compared to two and three, and he said that the pass rush was just a much different unit in week four against Miami, and I think we all saw that. So I think pass rush, stopping the run, and then running the ball offensively is what this team wants its identity to be, and uh, we'll see if they can be consistent and keep that going. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, the defense played much better uh, this week, and I definitely want to get into a lot of uh, details from uh, the win Sunday against the Dolphins, uh, the Week 4 victory. But uh, just one quick question going back to Detroit for a second. Uh, Evan, do you think we all maybe underestimated the institutional knowledge that Matt Patricia had of, of these Patriots players, uh, you know, being just a season removed and having been there for 14 years? And, you know, maybe he, and you know, uh, also kind of knowing what Josh, you know, how he's going to run that offense for the most part and most of those same players are still there. So, I mean, did we just underestimate that? And maybe that also kind of led to, you know, Detroit having just that much success against the Patriots? I think that we underestimated that maybe a little bit, but I actually think we underestimated more so the impact of some of the players that used to be on the Patriots and having that kind of revenge factor of, you know, being released or not re-signed by New England and moving on to Detroit. Guys like Ricky Jean Francois, who had the game of his life in that game uh, a couple weeks ago when they played each other, and he's just a player that's been a journeyman defensive tackle that's kind of been bolstered into a starting role with Detroit because of a lack of depth at that position, and he just had the absolute game of his life, like I said. I mean, he was blowing up Shaq Mason, who's one of the best run blockers in the league, and he was just blowing him up as a line of scrimmage on short yardage and things of that nature. And then obviously Tavon Wilson, the safety who the Patriots drafted in the second round, it didn't work out with the pass. He ends up sticking in the league with Detroit. He had a very nice game too. So I think that there was some revenge factor there, both from the players and from not necessarily revenge with Matt Patricia, but just knowledge that kind of, you know, caught the Patriots in a in a time where I think that they really thought um, that they were a better team than the team that played down in Jacksonville and were disappointed in that loss. And I could kind of tell just from being in the locker room the mood between the, the Jacksonville game and the Detroit game was not 
a winning mentality. It was not where it needed to be. It was something that I slept on that I probably should have picked up on more, which is that it was very low energy. A lot of players felt kind of overwhelmed with the amount of things that they needed to correct and uh, all the things that went wrong in Jacksonville that I think took them by surprise that they played so poorly in such a, uh, a marquee matchup early in the season. And then it spilled over into the Detroit game where you kind of see saw the same team that we saw in Jacksonville, kind of a flat team that had poor execution on both sides of the ball and wasn't really you know uh, up to snuff with a team in Detroit that seemed like a lot of those players really were out to prove a point that night that the Patriots shouldn't have been favored, that the Patriots shouldn't have let them go in, in some cases as well. And I think that that's kind of what led to it. And then all of a sudden the mood and the locker room really, I would say, on Tuesday of last week leading up to the Miami game really shifted to much lighter, uh, much, a lot more smiles, a lot more joking around in the locker room, and a lot more confidence, I would say, in their abilities and what they were doing and what they were personally doing as a team. And then by the end of the week, towards you know, Thursday, Friday, it was like a completely different mood in there, uh, very loose, very relaxed. And you, I would think a lot of people – saw it uh, with some of the footage that came out of practice on Friday where Tom Brady is, you know, mimicking James White and he's dancing on the practice field and a lot of the players had a ton of energy that day and I think you could kind of feel that the tide was turning a little bit and, uh, you know, now they just kind of have to build on that and put it together week after week after week. Well, again, we're talking here with uh, Evan Lazar, uh, Patriots uh, beat reporter for CLNS Media and you can uh, follow him on Twitter. He still has the same Twitter handles he's always had. Uh, That's at Easy Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R. Uh, Evan, uh, let's get you know, let's get to Sunday's win against the Dolphins, where things looked a lot better. You know, it's funny. I was kind of thinking back. When had a Patriots team started one and three under Brady and Belichick? And of course, that was the danger. Had they lost uh, to the previously undefeated Dolphins on Sunday, I went back to Brady's first year as a starter, 2001. Actually, week four, they played the Dolphins in Miami, and Brady got throttled. Uh, I think it was like 30-10 to 10 or something like that. And uh, the Patriots were 1-3 and three, and then obviously came all the way back. We all know how the 2001 season ended, of course. Uh, thankfully, that didn't, uh, you know, that wasn't the case here. The Patriots avoided that. Uh, having the Dolphins come up here to Foxborough where they haven't won in 10 years, and when they won here in 08, Brady wasn't, the, wasn't a quarterback. Uh, that was the year he was out, of course. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of things, I mean, you know, you talked a little bit, I, I was reading one of your columns, uh, you mentioned Brady was a little up and down overall, and it was kind of a weird game for him in, in some ways, I mean, he had good passing numbers, 274 yards, threw for three touchdowns, but also uh, the two interceptions, which certainly is not a Brady characteristic, and even some of the pass distribution, I mean, we saw, well, I guess we can talk about that, but uh, talk about Brady first, then we'll get into some of the receivers. Yeah, I don't think that Brady is completely free of blame with some of the struggles that they've had in the passing game. What I've noticed from him more so than I think a lot of people when Brady struggles because he's, you know, 41 years old, want to say, is he finally falling off that cliff? Are his skills diminishing? It's not the skills. I don't see those diminishing. I don't see his velocity being any worse on his passes than it was a year ago when he won the MVP or anything like that. But I think that there's a lack of confidence right now in what's going on around Tom Brady for him personally. And he hinted 
with me, I asked him a question about, you know, having Julian Edelman back on the field this week and moving forward and how much that is going to help his confidence because I've kind of noticed that when he stands in the pocket, he's not as confident in his offensive line and his protection when he's throwing the ball downfield. He's not as confident in some of the receivers, you know, guys like Cordell Patterson, Philip Dorsett. Uh, when he targets them, he's not as confident that they're going to be in the right spot they're going to finish the play, they're going to make a catch, you know, whatever the case may be. And he basically said that, you know, it puts a lot of confidence in the quarterback when you have a receiver like Edelman that gets open early in the route. And I was I thought it was interesting that he kind of focused in on early in the route like that because we can see with guys like Dorsett and Patterson and even Chris Hogan, there are guys that separate late and downs because of plays being extended or getting help with scheme or something of that nature, and they're not necessarily guys that are winning instantly at the line of scrimmage. So I think that it's uh, interesting that he pointed that out, that he hasn't had really a target that gets open early besides maybe James White in their passing route, and even Gronk at this stage is not the type of guy that wins uh, immediately at the line of scrimmage necessarily either. So I think that getting Edelman back is going to help Brady a ton in that respect, but he's not blameless, like I said. I mean, he has made decisions in these first four or five weeks of the season that are very uncharacteristic of Tom Brady. His reads are not as crisp as they were in years past. It's not that he's not seeing the field well necessarily. He's just not processing things as quickly. He's getting held up on his first read a little bit more than I've seen him in the past, and uh, we've seen some errant throws as a result. The beginning of that Detroit game was a perfect example when he uh, he threw an incomplete pass on the first two third downs of the game and the first one he kind of came late to Chris Hogan over the middle and uh, it looked like he had James White at the sticks if he wanted it on his first read he didn't like it he pulled it down and he came over to Hogan it was also open but it was too late at that point the play had already you know, developed past hitting him on that route and then on the second one you know it was another second read type play where he came back to a dig route to Philip Dorsett and he ends up over Dorsett's head so those combinations of those uh, types of things I think are just uncharacteristic from what we are seeing uh, from Tom Brady in this later stage of his career and that is just lighting quick progressions uh, getting the ball out extremely quickly trusting it and letting it go when he sees something open and not necessarily hesitating to pull the trigger uh, right now I think that there's a little bit of hesitancy in his game because of what's around him and not necessarily anything that's physically wrong with him well and you talked about that uh, in uh, the column that you posted today on clnsmedia.com uh, talking about the return of Julian Edelman and of course uh, some of the stuff you you, you mentioned you know, I kind of realized, but you, you kind of boiled it down into some hard numbers, which, uh, you know, didn't, you know, I, that gave me some second thought a little bit. I mean, I know that having a good slot receiver has always been an important uh, part of Tom Brady being able to run an effective offense uh, throughout his career. But, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, over the last uh, 12 years, the Patriots with uh, over 13,000 receiving yards from their uh, all their slot receivers they've had. And, of course, it's been a great tradition for Brady over the years. It started with Troy Brown and then Deion Branch, Wes Welker, uh, Danny Amendola, and, and Julian Edelman. I mean, those are uh, five pretty good guys, and they've caught a lot of balls from Tom over the years, and uh, they've been reliable. And I guess maybe, like you said, that it's just this is why the offense has looked so clunky the first four weeks because Chris Hogan just is not a slot receiver as hard as he tries. He can't get that initial separation uh, that uh, someone like Edelman can. But I guess back to Edelman, I, I would ask you, Evan, uh, you know, 
Julian coming off the uh, the you know the ACL and the reconstructive surgery and all that. I mean, what if he loses a half a step here and maybe he can't still get that same separation? Are there can are there any concerns uh, with that with Edelman's return this week? Well, I think that there's always concerns whenever a player has an injury like that with an ACL at Edelman's age that he's not going to quite be the same guy. But I think what I come back to is that he doesn't necessarily need to be the same guy, right? He doesn't need to be as explosive and dynamic as he was before. He just needs to give them a slot receiver that can actually play the position at a seemingly high level for the Patriots' standards. And as you mentioned, you know, Chris Hogan just isn't a slot guy. He's more of a guy that runs in a straight line, gets vertical or gets horizontal, and he can get open that way. But he's not a quick guy inside that's going to beat guys with a good footwork and agility and stuff like that like Julian is going to do so whether or not Julian Edelman is let's say 2016 2015 Julian Edelman is one thing but if he's as good as Danny Amendola was last year who was still a very good receiver but Amendola has never really elevated his game to peak you know Julian Edelman form so even if he is that kind of guy just having that presence back in the slot it's such a pivotal part of what they've done over the last 18 years you know two decades of success has been on offense, those option routes, the timing routes over the middle, the quick hitters uh, over the middle on third down, uh, having that type of guy that they can move around the line of scrimmage, move off the line of scrimmage, uh, and, and using what Brady called like those specialty plays that we've seen Edelman use in the past where he comes in motion pre-snap and they kind of get him into a matchup or into some leverage and get him open. You know, those types of situations, I think that, you know, it's just they haven't had that guy this year, and I think that it's been underrated aspect of a lot of people talking about the outside-the-numbers dudes, you know, not having a guy outside the numbers that can win against coverage, and that's why they traded for Josh Gordon. Well, I think that they've missed the inside-the-numbers guy just as much, if not more, than the outside-the-numbers guy because – up until, you know, really it's been only a couple of exceptions, like a Brandon Cooks or a Randy Moss, or having that type of guy where Brady has really been a perimeter deep threat passer. He's really always been an in-the-middle-of-the-field short passing game type player, and they really haven't had that option with the guys that they have currently on the roster. And now that Julian Edelman will be back, I just think that it's really going to – you know, open up a whole lot for the offense. That's like, I call this slot their pivot position. It's what everything else, all of their route concepts, all of their uh, schemes um, in the passing game, it's such a focal point of what they do, and everything kind of feeds off of the slot position and obviously off of the tight end position since Gronk has been here. But those two spots, you know, are kind of the keys, I would say, to this offense, and it's, a, it's not a coincidence that it's, you know, all in the middle of the field. Yeah, and once you have Edelman back at his position playing regularly again, uh, you know, pun intended here, everyone else slots back into their natural positions, such as Chris Hogan. So maybe, you know, going forward, he's not going to be getting just one target a game. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the analogy, you can uh, make it with baseball, uh, a good bullpen or or a good rotation. You've got the ace at the front or you got the closer at the front of the bullpen. And then every other, uh, you know, pitcher slots in after that. And if one, you know, if that guy's missing at the top and you ask everyone else to try to do something that they're maybe not capable of doing well, 
then it kind of falls apart. And I guess that's what we've seen from the from the Pats offense. I mean, you would say the Hogan, uh, you know, getting just the one target. I mean, he got he got one less target than both uh, uh, Gordon and Dwayne Allen this week. I mean, do you think that Hogan will? It, this isn't something personal with Brady and Hogan, right? It's just it's just the fact that Hogan's kind of playing out of position now that he'll be back in his normal spot on the outside. Things should be going back to normal again. Yeah, actually, you know, I mentioned this on Twitter, but I, I think it's very true with Chris Hogan. He had a, a few openings in this past game against Miami that he just didn't get the target for whatever reason. There was pressure in Brady's face, or that wasn't his first read on the play, and the ball went elsewhere. He was getting open a little bit in this Miami game, more just so than he had been in the previous three games. So I expect the targets to come for Chris Hogan, and I think that you know having Edelman back and putting him in a position where he can succeed more and, and win more is definitely going to help and uh, I think that you know Brady probably watched this film uh, coming back from Miami and realized hey you know I probably should have gotten the ball to Chris on this one or that one and uh, and that you know will change moving forward once they kind of have uh, everybody back and also you know just a little sometimes you know a lot is made about like why this player wasn't targeted or why this player wasn't more involved sometimes it just doesn't work out you know it's not anything specific it's not anything you know uh, about the player or a knock on the player or whatever sometimes it's just the flow of the game just doesn't work out for them and doesn't they don't get targeted as many times as they should have or Brady just misses him you know for whatever reason uh, and I think that's kind of what we saw this week you know against Miami with Chris Hogan although I would agree that you know the previous three weeks there was a lot of uh, him getting shut down what are your early thoughts on Josh Gordon uh, what you what you've seen of him mostly in practice of course he did finally get into a game on uh, Sunday and uh, had a couple of catches that he seemed to make an impact I mean both times he you know either fighting a double team or breaking a tackle uh, it looks like he you know there's something there but can they keep his head on straight yeah I well I think that you know in terms of keeping their head his head on straight one thing that I you know from having talking to him at, at post game uh, on Sunday and then also just talking to the other players about him the Patriots not only their coaching staff and uh, their, their I can't remember the guy's name but they have a, a coach a character coach they call it that kind of works with players that have had some off-field problems or have some mental health problems and try to keep them in good spirits and keep them in a the right mind space I think that he's getting a whole lot more support from inside the building than he ever did in Cleveland you know guys that are really taking him under their wing telling him how much of a focal point and how much of a key contributor he can be to this team if he can keep his head on straight and I think that he realizes kind of the opportunity ahead of him as a result here that you know not only can he catch a bunch of passes from Tom Brady this season but if he and the rest of the team you know performs up to their expectations and up to their standards, he could be looking at winning a Super Bowl, uh, you know, with this team. And that's obviously a far cry from anything that he's ever experienced in the NFL with Cleveland. So I think that he realized what's a great opportunity this is, not only to catch passes from Tom Brady, but also to have an opportunity to play in January and play for Super Bowls and play on the biggest stage. I am excited about this offense with Josh Gordon because I really, not only is he just a dynamic talent, in his own right, I think that overall, you know, he's just a player that they they can really lean on to get open on the perimeter that can do it with a bigger body and a bigger frame than maybe some of the guys that they've had in the past, like a Brandon Cooks. 
And speaking of bigger bodies, Rob Gronkowski uh, hobbled off the field late in the uh, Miami game, and I know he's been on the injury report a, a few times already this season with uh, with ankle issues. So uh, any concerns uh, with Gronk here? Uh, I mean, I guess the team said uh, it, it's not a it's nothing big, but uh, I guess the real question, I guess then, if that's the case, is is he ready to play on a short week uh, this week against Indy? Yeah, I'd be really surprised to see Gronk out there on Thursday. Uh, main reasons, uh, number one, I just don't see against the Colts team that, quite frankly, the Patriots should beat uh, regardless without Rob Gronkowski or not. They're just a veteran team, the Patriots. They they have a lot more talent, I think, than the Colts. If there, A lot of people want to talk about how the Patriots don't have a talented roster. Go look at the Colts roster. I mean, it's it, they're – easily a bottom five roster in the league the Patriots are not anywhere close to that so I think that you know in terms of talent the Patriots might actually uh, you know it's not going to be a ton of weeks this year where they're with the Patriots schedule where I'm going to clearly say they have the more talent you know other than some of the games in the AFC East but with an outside AFC East opponent this is about as more you know as much talent bias towards the Patriots, I would say, than any week that they're going to have this year with some of the teams that they're going to play. And I just don't think that they necessarily need Rob Gronkowski in this game. And therefore, you know, why push it on a short week with such an important player? If you give him Thursday off, then obviously he has 10 days to recover for the next game, which is a much bigger game against the Kansas City Chiefs. So I I would really be shocked to see Gronk out there on Thursday. And obviously on the other side, you know, with Indianapolis, they're going to be without their number one target in T.Y. Hilton, it sounds like. So I think it's going to be a really, uh, it's going to be a big struggle for Indianapolis if the Patriots defense especially plays like it did against Miami. Uh, then I think it's going to be a struggle for the Colts to move the ball without T.Y. Hilton. I, I think the Patriots can win this game uh, with, you know, a, a, just an average day on offense. It doesn't need to be 38 points like we saw on Sunday. Yeah, it's certainly been uh, some early growing pains for uh, for Coach Reich in the uh the, the Colts off to a one and three start, but it, it appears that Andrew Luck certainly is back uh, close to the form that we saw before uh, all the, the injuries hit with him. Now, honestly, I haven't had a chance to see much of him. I don't know if, if you have. I mean, I know you're watching a lot of Patriots game film. Have you seen uh, much of Luck so far this year? Is he, is he looking uh, very much like the Luck of old? I just watched their Houston game, you know, obviously watching the tape to get ready for to break this game down, and Andrew Luck looks terrific. Uh, I don't really see any sort of difference. I mean, maybe his fastball, to use a baseball analogy, instead of 95, it's coming in at 90, you know, but it's not like we're, we're seeing a, a huge drop-off in velocity like a guy like a Chad Pennington or something like that where they just completely lost their ability to throw the ball downfield. Now, the offense that Frank Reich runs, obviously very similar to Philadelphia. I'll be writing about that, uh, this, you know, come here tomorrow on Wednesday before the game. But a big thing with the Frank Reich offense is that it's a West Coast-based scheme, so a lot of the passes are short passes. Uh, that's just by design. It's not anything to do with Andrew Luck's shoulder being a problem or anything like that. It's just the way that the offense is operating, and obviously they have the option on every single play like most schemes do, whether it's West Coast or whatever, to throw deep. But it's not a vertical passing offense per se. It's definitely more of a short passing game. So that has really led to Andrew Luck making a lot more uh, reads of the line of scrimmage, checks of the line of scrimmage, and then also a lot more quick decision making uh, with his reads and stuff like that. I think that it's actually made him more uh, a better quarterback, quite frankly, a more efficient quarterback, that's for sure. I think when, you know, you'll remember when 
with Andrew Luck early on in his career before all the injuries, uh, he threw a lot of interceptions. And I think that one of the reasons why he threw a lot of interceptions was is because he trusted his arm so much that he thought he could hit every shot in the park. You know, like he thought that he could just fit it into any tight window, any passing lane. He he trusted his arm so much that he knew that he could thread the needle, and it didn't always work out. Now he realizes that he might not have his best fastball anymore, so he has to kind of cut back a little bit on turning it loose into some of those tight windows, and he's making better decisions as a result. And they've put a lot of heavy workload on him. Uh, they're throwing the ball a ton, and he's also making a lot of decisions on the field. It's kind of like you know a de facto offensive coordinator at the line of scrimmage. Well, who would we expect to, I'm just curious, uh, who do you expect to see for the Colts uh, as far as targets for luck if uh, Hilton is going to miss the game this week? Well, I think the big one is tight end Eric Ebron, who they signed in the offseason to basically play the Zach Ertz role in this Frank Reich West Coast college type system, and he's really high flourished, quite frankly, in that offense so far. Obviously, Ertz is a much more talented receiver than, you know, uh, than Ebron is, but overall, it's been looking very good for the Ebron era and, you know, beginning of the Ebron era here in Indianapolis in that Zach Ertz kind of receiving tight end role. I look for him and, obviously, uh, rookie Naeem Hines, who I really liked in the draft process, thought that maybe the Patriots might be interested in him as kind of a receiving back type. He's been able to kind of elevate himself as well without the absence of T.Y. Hilton caught a few touchdown passes last week and really uh, burn and, and get deep on you. Well, you know, the Patriots, uh, maybe they, they liked Hines, but they also they got their own guy in the draft in Sony Michelle, and, and he certainly uh, broke out in a big way against the Dolphins uh, last week, uh, his first 100-yard game, his first NFL touchdown. And, and I know there's some certain afternoon uh, talk shows here in Boston that want to just rip him to shreds and that his career was washed up through, through three weeks, but uh, I think it was a little premature to do that, and uh, uh, this kid certainly has some talent. And the other interesting thing is I don't even think really – Brady hasn't utilized him at all as a receiver, and yet, you know, when he played at Georgia, he was kind of a good two-way back. He could run well, but he was also a good pass catcher. Yeah, well, I think that the pass-catching element this past week in Miami, I think they really wanted to focus on getting him going on the ground, and they have such a good pass-catching back in James White that he doesn't necessarily need to be a big pass-catcher. And I think that one thing, you know, people forget is that last year with Deion Lewis, Deion Lewis was a factor in the passing game, but it wasn't like it was, you know, in 2015 when he was an absolute dynamite pass catcher. That was really still the pass catching duties were still really James White's responsibility because he's just such a good player, James White. I mean, every single person that you talk to in that building, whether it be the other running backs, his teammates, Tom Brady obviously has praised the heck out of James White this year, and obviously Belichick, and now he's a team captain. I mean, James White is just a terrific football player. So I think that Sony has a lot of really good guys to look up to in James White and obviously before he got injured Rex Burkhead as two veteran guys that really get how the system and get how to succeed here in New England and he's done a great job I think Sony uh, this past week obviously you know is where it really kind of started to shine in, in terms of stats and box score production but uh, you know with the, the radio hosts around here I totally understand the, some of their criticisms there were a lot of giant holes for Sony to run through uh, this past week and he kind of just ate up yards in situations where uh, the offensive line was really getting him going. But one thing that I always said about him when he was struggling the first couple weeks, you know, weeks two and three, I told people, you know, Sony Michelle needs blocking. He's not – 
a Walter Payton or Walter Payton's a bad example. He's not a Barry Sanders, right? You know, he's not a guy that's going to be super sexy and make a bunch of guys miss and, and uh, you know, explode it through holes that don't exist and that type of thing. We kind of got spoiled, I think, uh, as Patriots fans and media with Deion Lewis, who's really a very, very good running back. And one thing that Deion was just terrific at was just making guys miss in short areas, obviously. And that's just not Sony's game. His game is getting himself to the second level and using his underrated power and explosion in his lower half to, uh, you know, extend runs from being five-yard run- runs to 10 to 20 to 30 and hopefully longer eventually this year into, you know, explosive runs downfield. So I think that one thing, you know, a lot of people kind of want him to be that elusive Alvin Kamara, Deion Lewis, that Saquon Barkley, that type of running back, but that was never who he was at Georgia, and it's not who he's going to be here with the Patriots. He's going to be a slashing running back. He's going to be a guy that's going to hit the hole hard. He's going to burst through. You give him a runway and you give him blocking, then he's going to have a game like he did on Sunday, and I think that he can turn out yards at the best of them uh, when you give him the blocking, but he's definitely not a guy that I that I thought ever was going to create yards out of nothing in the backfield. Uh, maybe hopefully that's something that he can develop long-term, and I think that also another thing that you know I just want to see from Sony this week and moving forward is just a little bit more patience, uh, waiting for his blocking to develop and waiting for things to open up where sometimes he kind of gets ahead of himself and he ends up running into the back of his offensive lineman or on Sunday, there were a few instances where he ran into the back of James Devlin. Uh, those types of things, uh, I think, is just, you know, a rookie running back still trying to figure out his blocking. But, uh, you know, maybe he should watch a little bit of, like, Le'Veon Bell <laughs> and, like, see how Le'Veon just, like, freezes sometimes in the hole and kind of skips a beat, and that allows his blocking to kind of, you know, uh, take that next step and allows guys to reach their blocks at the second level and stuff like that, and then you keep going, and then you use your acceleration and your burst. Uh, a little bit more patience from Sony, and, and that's really the only thing in terms of running the football that I think that he needs to do, you know, better at this stage. Well, sometimes Bell freezes so much, he doesn't even go out on the field, at least not till week seven, I guess is the latest <laughs> news there, but uh, with Michelle, I could have sworn I heard a stat after the game this week that said that he got over half of his yards on Sunday after he had gotten an initial hit. So, you know, it wasn't all the offensive line was opening holes. He did, you know, there was there was some initial contact on him and he broke out and was able to get more yards after being hit. Yeah, yeah, he ended up, uh, I think PFF had this stat at about 77 yards after contact, which is a ton of yards after contact, obviously, and I just think that it's it's coming in different ways. He runs with a lot more power, and, is, and he's got a great balance and center of gravity about him that's not necessarily the same as guys that we've seen in the past couple of years here. I mean, we are extremely, extremely spoiled with a guy like James White. You think? Ability to- <laughs> Make guys miss in the hole and make guys miss, you know, in short areas and, you know, sweet feet white, right? You know, those jump cuts that he does and stuff like that, that's not normal. That's not something that every single running back in the league has the ability to do. That's kind of something that James White has, you know, developed over his career and has been able to be like that. Deion Lewis, very similar. That's not Sony. Sony is a thrashing running back. He's a slasher. He's a guy that's going to run, you know, eight, ten yards at a time uh, on these runs when he gets to the, uh, the line of scrimmage he gets a little bit 
the opening with his blocking because he has that explosion. He has some power to him. He has a lot of really good balance, a lot of good feel for the game. So I know I've always been a big Sony Michelle guy. I was big when they drafted him. I'm going to continue to be a big Sony Michelle guy. And can we cut the guy a break? I mean, I understand the criticisms. I hey, don't look at me. I've cut him a break. <laughs> I don't have any problems with him. Right. I, just, I understand shows. being fair and, and judging what you're seeing and all that stuff. But the hyperbole, the hyperbole and the, the unnecessary bashing of the guy who is a rookie who's playing in his third career game, uh, you know, it, it's just, to me, that's where it kind of gets off the rails is, you know, let's hone it in a little bit. The kid's 24 years old, 23 years old. He just got here. Uh, you know, let, let's let him have a chance to kind of get going before we tear him down. I mean, the, the hyperbolic, you know, speak that they use, I don't want to, Name any names. Oh, no, it's off the rails from two to six. That's all it is. It's, there's a great name for a show. Why don't we just call it what it is? Hey, what I'm saying is it's totally fine to to judge a player and criticize a player where you deem criticism is warranted. It's It, it, does, it just feels like sometimes it, it, it's personal, uh, and it, it becomes too personal with some of these guys. Well, well. Speaking of personal, you, what you were talking about there a moment ago uh, with uh, with Sony Michelle and James White. Maybe you came up with a couple of pretty good nicknames for these two. If this is going to be your lead running back duo, maybe Slash and Thrash. That, what do you think of that? I mean, yeah, yeah. I just think that, like I said, or we can go with uh, Sony and J Dub, which is what I call them. So it's uh, it's, it's not it's not normal. You know that run that the touchdown run that James White had on Sunday, the twenty two yard run where he makes Robert Quinn just do the splits. You know, in the mm-hmm. whole that, that that kind of cut is not not every running back can do that. You know, it's that's not a, a normal thing. That's that's a skill that James White has that other guys don't. That separates him and makes him who he is. It, that's not Sony, and that's okay. It's okay that he's not going to be Mr. Elusive. Well, let's wrap up here with one uh, question. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the defense. So a uh, last question here in regards to the defense. Certainly they got themselves back on track. I think it, it definitely helps having uh, Trey Flowers and, and uh, Patrick Chung back in that lineup. Uh, it certainly uh, did a lot, I think, for, you know, again, maybe on the defense everyone else gets to slot back into their natural spots and uh, roles, and it just made the whole defense look better. I mean, holding the Dolphins to less than 100 total yards until the game was totally out of hand is is extremely impressive. And who the hell is this John Simon guy? I mean, I just, all of a sudden, I wanted to, you know, uh, Simon says he was, like, all over the field there uh, uh, it, down, at, down the stretch. I guess he's the one who's basically filling Jawan Bentley's spot on the roster, not saying he's necessarily filling the same position but uh talk a little bit about him and, and what you uh, saw from the defense sunday yeah i'll start with simon i mean he's a guy that i have kind of had my eye on for a while now because he just really fits the patriots mold of a type of player that i mean we saw it on sunday his motor is always running and he plays with a lot of great um tenacity and energy, pursuit speed, play strength, all the things that Bill Belichick talks about, you know, in um, in complimenting defensive players. I've always kind of thought John Simon has been that type of guy. And, and another thing that he does very well is, is just he has a very fundamentally sound approach to the game. He's been the guy that, you know, whether it was in Houston or in uh, Indianapolis, that I've always kind of said to myself, you know, if they signed him in free agency or they made a move to get him, I would not, you know, be surprised at all. He's like a Patriot type player. I, I don't know necessarily 
who I would compare him to that we've seen in the past, um, but he's one of those outside linebackers, edge types that can drop a little bit into coverage. He can play a little bit against the run, but he's really a very good pass rusher, and that's kind of you know what we saw on Sunday is is kind of his bread and butter. And I think that you know overall with the defense, it's all about speed, right? And everybody wants to talk about they're slow, their linebackers are slow, the defense moves slow, and I think that what you can see is is that when they are confident in what they're doing defensively and everybody is on the same page and on the same wavelength, they're able to play with a whole lot more speed. And I think that the team really uh, narrowed down on fundamentals and kind of went back to the drawing board this last week before Miami into what do the Patriots want to do defensively. Not necessarily what's the game plan, what do we have to do to stop Miami. It's what do the Patriots, what is our identity, what do we want to play like, how do we want to play the game. And it's playing it fundamentally sound, staying true to your keys, knowing where you're supposed to be on every play, playing, you know, basically being a well-coached unit, right? It's not necessarily about talent or anything like that. It's just basically being well-coached. And I think that what they were able to do uh, on Sunday was they were really able to turn it loose and play flat, play fast and play uh, on the same page. And I think that, you know, what we saw on Sunday was probably the, the best that we're going to see of this Patriots defense. That's probably them at their peak. Um, but hopefully what they can do is, is they can kind of string this together here and continue to uh, to play like that. Yeah, and hopefully uh, they'll right continue to play like that and then uh, you know find a way to maybe slow down uh, Pat Mahomes in a couple of weeks when uh, the Chiefs come in here to Foxborough. You know, it's funny. Everyone that I speak to uh, about the defense says, yeah, you know, they look great against Miami, but that Pat Mahomes guy is coming and, and he's going to tear us apart. I mean, let's let it happen before we say that. You know what I mean? Uh, I think Pat Mahomes is a fantastic player. I think he's going to be a very good quarterback for a very long time in this league. But, uh, but they still got to come here, Kansas City, and, and they still got to execute, you know? And uh, I think that's one thing that I've learned from being, uh, you know, around the players more now is that at the end of the day, you can have all the schemes, you can have all the Madden, uh, you know, simulations, and you look at the rosters, and PFF tells you that this team is way better than that team, or this roster construct is better than that construct. On Sundays, it's all about, or Thursdays in this week's case, it's all about who plays better on that day. It's simple. It sounds kind of, you know, uh, oversimplifying it, but it's really not. And on Sunday against Miami, the Patriots executed their game plan to perfection. The previous two weeks, they executed poorly. And when you execute to perfection, all of a sudden it makes everybody look better, makes the players individually look better, it makes the coaching staff look better, and it's not necessarily any magic formula that that they drink or anything like that. They just flat out played better. Well, and to your point on Mahomes, too, look at Belichick's all-time record when he faces an opposing quarterback for the first time, putting up different looks, and that's the, probably going to be the sort of uh, game plan that, that he and uh, Coach Flores is going to try to employ uh, from a defensive standpoint to show uh, Mahomes some things he hasn't seen yet. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's going to be tough for the to slow down that Chiefs offense. It's tough for everybody at this stage to slow down that Chiefs offense, but all I'm saying is, is let's let's give them a, a puncher's chance before we just say that they're going to give up 50 points. Oh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely do, and I'm with you there uh, for sure. Crazy stretch here for the Patriots coming up for their next five games are under the lights, uh, like you know, which is uh, just 
kind of cra- I mean, I don't think the Patriots have ever had a stretch where they played this many night games unless you want to. Well, I guess you can't even really count the playoffs because they don't. They never play four playoff games. It's right. three games to glory. So uh, we didn't really talk a whole lot about the whole Pats Colts matchup. Although, as you said, you didn't think it was going to be that difficult, and I tend to agree with you. I'm just going to throw out one comment here. Uh, Adam Vinatieri coming back into uh, town again. Uh, you know, setting uh, he's got the uh, all-time uh, field goal record. He uh, passing Morgan Anderson. I, in my opinion, I think he eventually should get to the Hall of Fame. Um, yeah, I know there's, there's only one other kicker in there now, but, but here's the other thing. It's been 13 years. There are still some fans at Gillette stadium that want to boo Vinatieri when he comes out on the field in a Colts uniform. And that to me, I've never gotten it. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what's your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's ridiculous, and I think that if there's a ki- if you're going to not put kickers in the Hall of Fame at all, then that's one thing, but if kickers obviously are, are players too, and they deserve a chance at the Hall of Fame, and I just don't see what other, what else does Adam Vinatieri have to do in his career to be a Hall of Famer? You know, I mean, big kicks in the playoffs, obviously, throughout his entire career. He has pretty much every kicking record that there is at this point. He, you know, it belongs to him. So, if, as terms of a Hall of Fame resume, I mean, there's literally nothing else that Adam Vinatieri could do uh, to have a better resume as a kicker to get into the Hall of Fame. So, I, I would hope that he's a lock for that. But in terms of booing him, I mean, it's ridiculous. Obviously, this guy uh, basically won you, uh, you know, at least in, in terms of the, in the moment, won you you know three Super Bowls essentially I mean all three of their first three Super Bowls in this run were decided by a field goal and those field goals were all kicked by Adam Vinatieri and obviously we had the performance in the snowball you know that Belichick just went on and on and on about today you know just saying that that kick in the snowball the, the long one at the end of regulation yeah the, the tying one that threw the line drive 45 yards through yeah. a raging blizzard yeah I mean just an unbelievable kick uh the best kick that you can ask anybody that's, you know, been around football over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, whether it's Belichick or not, and they'll tell you that's the best kick that they've ever seen. So uh, the guy has done more than enough. I hope someday not only is he in the regular, you know, in Canton in the Hall of Fame, I hope he's in the Patriots Hall of Fame too. I think that, you know, being around Matt Light last week on Thursday when he was available to the media, I think it's a lot more important uh, to these players to be in their team's Hall of Fame as well as, you know, obviously being in the big one. But I think that being in the team Hall of Fame really goes to show what the people around here think of the player, you know, not just the ownership and the coaching staff, but the media and the fans in Boston. I think it really means a lot to them that, you know, it's a media vote upon, uh, you know, honor to be in the Patriots Hall of Fame. Obviously, there's a committee that's made up by the media, and that those are the people that decide, along with the fan vote, uh, who gets in. So I think that it's really an honor uh, for all those players to get voted in by people that they kind of see as their supporters on a grassroots level, not necessarily guys that are voting for Canton. Yeah, and I think as far as Vinatieri goes, uh, first of all, as far as Canton, uh, to me, he gets in on that, that game-tying uh, snowball kick against Oakland right there because I you can take any of the best kickers in the history of the NFL in their prime, put them in that exact same spot at that exact same moment. I'm not sure they make it. As far as the Patriots Hall of Fame goes with Vinatieri, I mean, they're just waiting for him to retire. They've already got the red blazer sized up for him. Uh, and I don't know, maybe they, I don't know what the official rules are when uh, players become eligible. If it, if there's like a five-year thing, I think they may just let that go for Vinatieri and the, the very year after he retires from the Colts uh, and retires from the league that they'll uh, just get him in there and, uh, you know, deservedly so in, into the Patriots Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, I would definitely hope so. It's it's a tough it's a tough get to get into the Patriots Hall of Fame this in this era because right now all the guys that are becoming eligible are the early 2000s dynasty players. You know, obviously Matt White just got in. Uh, they still need to let in a couple of guys from that era that you know they haven't you know been able just to get to yet in terms of voting. So uh, not that I don't think Venetari is going to get in. I'm sure he'll get in, but it's just there's a lot of guys that they need to get in from those early 2000s. Yeah, that's true. It's just kind of a long list of players. Obviously, I I don't remember exactly what the rules are either in terms of eligibility, but you got a guy like Vince Wilfork that's going to be coming up soon, too, that obviously is a lock to get into the Patriots Hall of Fame. So there's a lot of players from this decade, these two decades, really, that uh, deserve to be into the Patriots Hall of Fame. And I'm pretty sure they only let one person in a year. So it's going to, you know. True. And it's a a kind of getting uh, to the point now where. Maybe they just should have a year where they let like three or four guys in from the early 2000s so that they can just get it over with. Well, and then there's still some players from the bygone, you know, the pre-2000 era, some really talented players, and they're not in there yet either, which, you know, at being being a little older than you, Evan, I remember a lot of those guys, and maybe they don't have the Super Bowl rings, but uh, they were certainly uh, very good caliber players. You know, oddly enough, as you mentioned it with Vinatieri, I think it might be harder for him, or it might be easier for him to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, despite the fact there's only one kicker in that hall of fame but just because they let in like you know 15 20 people a year it feels like right yeah yeah exactly i i think you know it's a very exclusive club honestly for the patriots hall of fame uh you know i was in there the other day for the matt light ceremony and you just look at the at the names on the wall and it's really not that many uh just because they only let in one a year and it's just a really tough to to get voted in there i i off the top of my head i can't think of any great examples of guys that aren't in that deserve to be in but there i know there are a ton of them. Oh yeah, again, a lot of the older group. I'm not sure if I don't like. I think Steve Grogan. I'm not sure he's in there yet. I think he definitely deserves a a place in there for uh, for his era, what he was able to do for the franchise, and, and playing most of his career uh, badly injured too. So uh, yeah, I mean the guy had a heart of a heart of a champion. Uh, uh, he's got as big as heart as Brady and Bledsoe and all those other guys. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Evan, listen, I appreciate you. We went far over time here from I, what we promised, okay. but I appreciate you staying on, and I'm kind of hoping and, and we didn't talk about this before we uh, started the the Todd cast but maybe we can try to do this every four weeks or so I was kind of thinking of like having sort of a quarterly update on the uh, how the team's progressing through the season so maybe if our schedules can work out maybe we can uh, do this a, a few more times during the season I would love to sounds good to me all right well glad to uh, hear it again uh, that is uh, Evan Lazar and you can hear all of it or you can you can hear him on the uh, the Pats all 22 podcast which is uh, you can find that on clnsmedia.com I'm gonna get it right <laughs> and uh, he's the co-host of that also you can read all his work on clnsmedia.com don't forget you can follow him on uh, Twitter at easy Lazar easy l-a-z-a-r and don't forget you can follow us on social media by searching Time Out for Sports Talk on Facebook and on Twitter. That's at TOSTBMC. That's our handle. And we put up the links to the latest Todd cast as soon as they're available. So, again, uh, thanks very much to Evan Lazar. And until next time, this is Todd Bloniars. Thanking you for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.